morning. Last few weeks, uh, Pastor started a series going through, you know, what is true? Can we know the Bible is true last week? Is it true that there is a Satan? Is it true that there is a hell? Is it true that all people go to heaven? That's not true, but he went through different things. Like it's talking about, can we, how do we know what we believe is true? And when he called me, we were talking about things that I might talk about, and I, I'm not sure who thought of it, but I think he might have said about truth. And I said, how about true? Is truth true? And it's such a relevant thing in our time now we're dealing with. Let's start out by looking at John, chapter 18. This is when Jesus is brought before Pilate by the Jewish leaders in verse 33. And it says, Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. And after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. What is truth? It seems like such an obvious question, right? Everyone knows what truth is. But as you look closer and closer, we realize that all around us, everything seems to be in question. Truth seems to be very clear in one situation. Other situations, maybe not so clear. And people seem to be saying that there is no such thing as an absolute truth. It's like trying to catch jello or pudding, right? You grab it, and you look at your hands, and at the end, you have a mess. And you don't exactly have what you thought you were trying to get. But you, you can't ever quite put your hands on it. Have you heard the expression, speak your truth? That used to be give your opinion. You notice how it's changed? To speak your truth. And the idea behind that is that you can have a truth, and I can have a truth, and he can have a truth, and she can have a truth, and they can all be different, and they can all conflict, and we're supposed to be okay with that. That's supposed to be all right. And it's a way to deflect criticism, isn't it, of an idea. Speak your truth. Um, in California, there's a new law. There's an article. I'm not going to go into it. I was going to, but um, in the Washington Post in August, they had a, I think, in their weekend section, a thing about a couple, Kate and Andy. Um, they were a lesbian couple, and Andy decided he was a transgender male. She was a transgender male, and so now it talks about the struggles Kate is going through because they're hanging out with heterosexual couples because he wants to feel Andy wants to feel normal as a male, even though he's a female who's a lesbian and she's a lesbian, and she can't figure out this situation because she doesn't want to hide who she says she is, which is a lesbian, but she's in a relationship. Are you confused yet? <laughs> and there's an interesting, at the end of the article it says, this, it's very difficult to figure this out when things are so fluid. You think? Right? What she's finding out, and what the author is, well, they're, they're seeing, they just don't get it, is that you can't grasp this because it isn't true. It isn't true. California has a new law that requires a minimum number of women directors in the boards of any publicly traded companies that are headquartered in California. But there's a problem. What is a woman? What if half the board members of the companies in California just identified as women tomorrow? Would the writers of that law be satisfied with that? They would immediately know that that wasn't true. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow it. Postmodernism is at the center of this. We've talked about that before in other settings. But the Wexner Center for the Arts, you may know, have heard the name Wexner. Les Wexner was the man who started the limited group, Limited Two, Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works, um, billionaire. And he gave money for this building. It's the Lexner, it's called the Wexner 
Center for the Arts at Ohio State, and it's the world is touted as the world's first postmodern building. And Ravi Zacharias talks about going for a tour of this building, and the person taking around was bragging about how this they had gone against and, and rejected all conventional architectural and design theories. There are stairs that go nowhere. They go up to just a wall and stop. There are columns that come down from the ceiling and stop without reaching the floor. There are hallways that just end and go nowhere. And Ravi asked a question. He said, I wonder if they use the same ideas when they design the foundation. Well, it doesn't matter. As we, as we struggle for truth and we talk about it, does it really matter? Um, well, it does for a few reasons. First of all, what we believe is at stake. How do we determine what we believe? Is it just based on our feelings? Or is it based on some absolute truth? For Christians, is it scripture? Uh, Dean William Firm, about 100 years ago, who was a liberal theologian, said, what are the motifs of liberal Protestantism? And liberal Protestantism is what's driven the mainline churches into decline in both North America and Europe, into dramatic decline. Um, perhaps the most important one of these motifs is the priority of first-hand personal experience as the authority for one's religious beliefs. All doctrines must be extracted from the inward experience of Christian people. Now, is that where we get doctrines from? No. We don't, they don't come from me. I don't decide. If I decided, God would be different. God would be me. Um, I forget. I, I can't remember now who said but someone said, I cannot bear the thought that God isn't me. Okay? Um, so we, what we believe is at stake. Also, if we abandon the absolute authority of the word, which comes from its being absolutely true, that's where that authority comes from, then what we have left is not Christianity at all. It's just a social club. It's just a bunch of people getting together, trying to be nice and have similar kind of ideas about how the way the world is, roughly. But there's really nothing there that we're clinging to that's outside of us if we reject Christianity. If nothing's right, then nothing's wrong. George Will said this. He said, there's nothing so vulgar left in human experience for which we cannot fly in some professor from somewhere to justify it. Right. This is, the third thing here is what I call the easy path. Now, it's true. Let's be honest. It's true that there are things that are matters of opinion and preference. Even among sincere believers, there's differences on matter of doctrine and teaching and scriptural interpretation that are, that are real. Right? We have essentials right, that, we, that we believe you have to believe these things in order to be a Christian. But there's a whole bunch of non-essentials that are still important. And when we discuss those, we have a model that we use for those interactions that includes grace and compromise and, and, and trusting each other and listening to ideas that are sincerely held by other believers, but that don't divide us. The problem is that model doesn't want to stay in that box. It wants to come out, and we want to use it everywhere. We want to apply it to everything. We always, we always give in whatever you think, your opinion. Everything becomes a matter of opinion. We value getting along more than we value truth. Now, we should value getting along, right? That's a good thing. If you have, anyone have kids, or you were a kid and had parents... Did they ever tell you to get along with your brother or sister? It's hard. I know. I had two brothers and a sister. They were all evil. Right? It was a chore for me to get along with them. But I did. Um, and they're not here, so they can't. there's no rebuttal. Um, but this becomes... Being a Christian means being nice, even at the expense of truth. Our, our, young, our oldest boy, Ethan, when he was little, had a habit of running... And he loved to run in the front yard. He's at that age where they run like the orangutan in any which way but loose. So kind of their hands are like this. And he's running towards the road. I remember we were with our neighbors were talking. And we said, Ethan, no. And so he stopped and spun away from the road like that. Okay? And as soon as he did that, we stopped going towards him. 
And he couldn't even see us. His back was to us. And as soon as we stopped, he swung right back towards the road. Almost like he had radar that knew they're not looking, go. Now we could have said, look at him. He's so happy. He's so carefree. I don't want to create conflict in my relationship with him. I don't want to cause any problems. Let him go. Let him have... Bam! Right? That's what would have happened. We don't do that. We stop the kid. Right? The battle, when they become older, I have two teenagers. Now, Ethan is in a senior year of high school. Is he, I have to now begin to let go of some of that control. My brother has a great way of saying this. You lose control to keep influence. Right? But I have to begin to give up some of that control. But I'm scared because he's going to make mistakes. And they're going to hurt him. And I don't want to do that. Right? But we have, to, we have to be able to do that. In 1 Kings 1, David is dying. And he's older. And his oldest remaining son, Adonijah, begins to make step, take steps without David's approval to become king. And there's a little parenthetical in there that's hardly noticed in, in, in verse 6. And I love the way the NIV says it. It says, David had never interfered with him by asking him, why do you behave the way you do? The writer didn't bother to explain that he was criticizing David. He knew the reader would understand. The ESV says it even better. He goes, he never displeased him by asking him, why do you behave this way? He never bothered to do it. Love means viewing the other person's interest or putting that at a higher priority than my comfort or their comfort. Okay, so we have to deal with these things. Um, well, there's three issues kind of that we have to deal with as we go through. First, we're going to get into a little bit of philosophy. Now, I apologize in advance for this. Hopefully this won't give you a brain aneurysm. But... Um, Michael Ramsden did a great job of defining a philosopher. He said, a philosopher is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. Okay? So sometimes we go through these, they think it can be a little, a little difficult. And if you've ever read a, a higher-level philosophy work, not a popular work, it can be mind-numbing. I wonder if even they understand what they've said at the end. But there are three theories. I'm sorry, the first thing we have to deal with is, how do we define truth? How do we do that? What are the frameworks? There are three basic theories in philosophy for, for truth. They are theories of truth. One is the one everyone knows called the correspondence theory. And that says very simply, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Obviously, right? Well, until about 150 years ago, 200 years ago, everyone accepted this. This was not really challenged by anybody. Um, it supports, it's called a classic view for that reason. It's kind of supported by the idea of absolute truth. The law, absolute truth is, is driven by the law of non-contradiction. Basically, P, proposition P, cannot be both true and false in the same sense at the same time. Okay? I can't be two places at once. I can't be two things at once in the same sense and at the same time. Now, I can be two different things. I'm a father and a brother. But I can't be a father and a brother to the same, in relation to the same person. Right? So you can't have a contradiction. Um, Ravi Zacharias tells a great story about this. When he was speaking one time in a university... Um, before he went to speak, a professor came to see him and said, listen, I want you to speak on why you're not, I believe it was a Hindu, why you're not a Hindu. And I'm going to bring my class and we're going to destroy you. Well, that's very exciting, right? So Ravi said, well, no, I'd really rather not do that. I think he uses a line like, I found when you sling mud at people, you just end up losing ground and getting your hands dirty. Um, and the guy said, no, no, I really want you to do it. He goes, well, I tell you what, I will speak on why I am a Christian, and implicit in that will be the explanation of why I'm not a Hindu. And so he finishes speaking, and the professor comes up, and he's beside himself. He goes, you have done more damage to the study of Eastern philosophy than I've seen anyone else do. And the reason is, and here's an American professor talking to Ravi Zacharias, who was born in India. The reason is you don't understand Eastern thinking. Okay? 
And so they decide to go to lunch. And this professor comes and he brings the professor of psychology with him. And they're ordering their food, and the food's coming, and Ravi and the one professor begin to eat. And this guy is, is writing all over all the placemats, throwing diagrams, explaining things, and this is his basic argument. He said, Ravi, you see, you don't understand. You are using an either-or logic. That's Western. And Ravi says, no, it isn't. He said, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Okay, go ahead. You're using, that's a, that's a Western type of thinking, either-or logic. And when you approach Eastern religions, you can't use that. See, in the East, Eastern thinking is a both-and kind of logic. And if you approach, and Ravi says, no, it isn't. He says, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Okay, fine, go on. Right? And he says, if you use, you have to use this kind of logic when you approach Eastern thinking and Eastern religions, because then you wouldn't be troubled when you see these, these contradictions. It wouldn't bother you, but you're using the wrong type of logic. And with that, he, he puts down his pen, and he begins to pick up his fork and start to eat. And Ravi says, I have one question for you. What you're telling me, if I understand you, is... When I study Eastern religions, I either use the both-end system of logic or nothing else. Am I right? And the professor, he said, he stopped with the fork midway to his mouth and put it down and said, after a minute, the either-or does seem to emerge, doesn't it? And Ravi says, yes, it does, and I'll tell you something else. Even in India, before we cross the street, we look both ways. It's either the bus or me, not both. Right? You can't contradict yourself. Things have to correspond to reality. This is, by the way, the correspondence is what I believe is the accurate theory of truth. This is the way truth should be viewed. But there's two others we want to talk about. One is the coherence theory of truth. It basically is a proposition is true if it coheres well with the rest of a, a set of your beliefs. As long as it all fits together and makes sense and it's consistent, that can be true. Basically, if it fits together, then it's true. Okay? What's the problem? Well, the problem is this group over here can have a set of beliefs that fit together and that are coherent, and this group over here can have one, and how do they interact? There's, truth, truth doesn't work, and you have all these problems that come out when you have contradictions. It just doesn't work. Now, we do use coherence as a test for truth. That's different than a theory of truth. In a court of law, for example, right, when we question witnesses, we look for those witnesses to say things that cohere, that make sense, in order to discover what the reality is that we're trying to, get the, you know, we're trying to find out. Right? But that's not using it. We're not saying that as long as the witness's story coheres and everything fits, that must be truth if we have another witness saying something different. We say right away, there's a problem there. We need to get in and look at all these different things. The third theory is called the pragmatic theory of truth. And this is just basically an idea that truth, the truth of an idea is found in its usefulness. Okay? If it works, it's true. We all know what being pragmatic means. There's a the problem with this is a lot of things that work or are useful for me that might not be useful for you. It is useful for me if all of you give me your wallets. Nobody? Right? Obviously, that doesn't work. Um, I've been watching a special um, this last week or so on Netflix here and there about the circle of men very close to Adolf Hitler. And there's one particular man. Anyone know who Reinhold Heydrich was? Recognize the name Heydrich? Heydrich was about Heinrich Himmler a little more popular. Heydrich was Himmler's deputy. And he was the architect behind the original plans for the extermination of the Jews. They were having a problem, you see. It was difficult to shoot all of these people. And it was hard on, ready for this, the soldiers who were doing the shooting. They were having problems. These men were breaking down. They, they, they didn't enjoy it. And so they had to find better ways. And he was the architect beginning to, behind the beginning of the plan that ended up with Auschwitz and Birkenau and other places like that. And he was assassinated in Czechoslovakia. 
and uh, Him- Himmler kind of took over his plans and continued. But he was described as being very pragmatic. He figured out what worked, and he went and did it. And it was okay because it was what worked. It, doesn't, it just doesn't, uh, it's not livable. The second issue we have to deal with besides how we define truth is there's an inconsistency in how we approach determining truth between the metaphysical and the physical. See, in the physical world, we understand very well that water, for example, is made up of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. If you don't do that right, you don't have water. And we expect people to follow it. That has to be followed. There's no question about that in the laboratory. Things have to be done a certain way or it's just plain wrong. If you take a math class and you have the wrong answer, you can't tell the teacher, well, that's just my view of it. It's convenient for me if 2 plus 2 is 5. It's wrong. I remember watching a TV show once where someone complained that they got the teacher marked it wrong if they did all this work and just because they got the answer wrong, he goes, what? The teacher marked it wrong because you put the wrong answer down? You know, what is this, Russia? You know, because you have to get to the right answer. I went to a high school that specialized in science and math, and I had a math teacher who had a proof along one wall about 20 feet long, and it proved that 1 equals 0. And you could get extra credit if you could figure out what was wrong with that proof because there was something wrong with it. The basic understanding was that can't be right. One doesn't equal zero. We know that. Okay? And you had to find it. I think she said only one student had ever figured it out. But um, we expect there to be certainty and no ambiguity. But when we come to metaphysics, we want things to be fluid. Why? Because metaphysics put demands on us. They make moral requirements of us. And we don't like that. But we're living with cognitive dissonance. Anyone know, you know what cognitive dissonance is? Dissonance is what happens if the worship team doesn't meet Wednesday nights in practice. Okay? You get one person playing one thing, one person playing another. They're not quite together. It might not be that bad because they played together before. But sooner or later, if they never practice and they get up, especially in a new song, it's going to be dissonant. It doesn't, sounds don't go together. Well, cognitive dissonance is the state of holding ideas in your head that contradict each other. Holding beliefs that don't fit together. And we live in that state. Uh, I believe it was Barner who did a study in the 90s. And what they did was they took non-Christians, and they took Christians, but they didn't just want self-identified Christians. They wanted to parse that group more finely. So they asked a whole bunch of other questions with kind of like markers to try to separate out people who identified as Christian, who were casual Christians, and people who were really committed Christians. Okay, And since that's something that's going to get sorted out later by somebody else, they had to figure out ways to do that. And so they added a whole bunch of other things, basically looking for some fruit. So they looked at things like church attendance, involvement in in worship, Bible study, those things, to try to separate that out. Now they have these three groups. And they looked at things like lying on a resume for a job, cheating on your taxes, faithfulness to your wife, those types of things. They found that in the group, the non-Christians, and the people who were casual Christians, there was very little difference in those responses. They were very similar. And in in the committed Christians, of course, it was much lower. But then they looked at something else. They looked at stress levels. And they found that the group of committed Christians had by far the lowest stress levels. But they found the group at the highest level of stress wasn't the unbelievers. It was the casual believers who said they were Christians but didn't follow and live according to what they knew to be true. Because they were living with this conflict inside their own minds. And then the, uh, the non-believers also had higher stress levels than the believers, but not as high as those who held this in, in a cognitive dissonance. We can't have this inconsistency. We have to sort it out. And then the last thing we have to live with or deal with is the issue of epistemology, the study of knowledge. How do we know? Is it possible to know truth? How do we know if something is true? What makes it true? How much can we know? There's something called skepticism. It's a, it's a, with a capital S. 
Not with a small S, capital S. Skepticism with a small S is when my 14-year-old son comes down in the morning walking like drunken Frankenstein, barely awake, and I say, did you make your bed? He goes, yes. Now, I know he didn't make his bed. That's a lie. I'm skeptical about that. That's a small S. Why? Because I'm unfair? Because I'm not giving him due process? No, because I have 14 years of history. Okay? Sorry, Isaac. Okay? But that's a small S. Capital S skepticism says we can't know anything for certain. You can't have any certain knowledge of anything. Um, But Jesus tells us something different. In John 8, 31 and 32, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's really interesting, that first verse there. You can flip those clauses, and, and it means the same thing. You really are my disciples if you continue in my word. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean you're saved if you do this, right? But what he's saying is there should be fruit. And one of the fruits in our lives when we're saved is that we continue in his word. That's how we know we're his disciples. And if we do that, we will know the truth. So Jesus tells us, no, it's, you can know truth, and this is how you know. Uh, N.T. Wright said, serious Christians should be seriously soaked in God's word. Okay, so now there, there's four approaches to truth we want to look at. Um, and this is basically the media we're going to talk about today. Um, Four different approaches. The first one is what I call the secular approach, okay, which is truth is perspective. All right? it, truth depends on your perspective. You can decide. It's, more, it's relativism okay, that we were talking about before. You can speak your truth. In the early 90s, there was a study about weight that was done. They found that 40% of overweight men thought they looked fine and felt they were just about the right weight. But 29% of women who were not overweight felt that they needed to lose some weight to be healthy, that they were. In fact, they both had different perspectives, but they're not both right. It doesn't matter what they think, they were wrong. It just doesn't work. There are two variables that this approach kind of hangs on. One is, as, as a culture, for, for, a popular, for everybody, for a world, is that there's consensus on, on what is right, that we're going to come to, through the secular approach, everyone has their opinions, but we're pretty much going to come to it. How does that work? Well, it works by the majority opinion. What most people feel is what we're going to do. That's what's right. Well, what's the problem with that? In this country, at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, the majority of white Southerners believed that slavery was morally acceptable. As a result, we have the infamous three-fifths compromise in the first article of the Constitution that says, because the Southern states realized, because they had far fewer, far less population, that they would be dominated in the House of Representatives, because that was going to be determined by population, said, we can't do this, we have to have, we want to count our slaves. And the Northerners said, well, your slaves are property. They're saying they're not even people. They can't vote. And they com- that's where the three-fifths compromise had said that they were going to count as three-fifths of a person for representation. That horrible, no one could quite see, could get through the truth and, and cut through that. Seventy-five years later, it cost 750,000 American lives to settle the question of whether it was acceptable and was going to be legal in this country. To this day, 150 years later, we still struggle with the vestiges of racism in this country. Different degrees, different places, different ways, right? There's all kinds of ideas about it, but there's no question we still struggle with it. It's still an issue because of that idea. Relativism also includes situational ethics, that what is right or true in one context might not be true in another. No idea, no moral framework is superior to any other. All ideas are the same. Peter uh, Chuck Colson would say the only sin that's left is the sin of intolerance. That's the only sin that's left. 
Um, Peter Kreeft, a Christian philosopher, said that in God's economy, there is to be an egalitarianism of people, but an elitism in ideas. People are all equal, but ideas aren't. There are some ideas that are good, and there are some ideas that are bad, and some are, just, some are better than others. But with relativism, what that does is it flips it around to where you have an egalitarianism of ideas. All ideas are the same. All thoughts are valid. Right? Nothing can be questioned. But in people, what you see is you see an elite developing of people who understand this versus people who are absolutists, and they're viewed as being uh, less intelligent. But what happens when your truth and my truth are in conflict? Chuck Colson um, described it well. He called it the grand says who. Says who? It's wrong to steal. Says who? Who decides? Francis Schaeffer described moral relativists as having both feet planted firmly in midair. There's nothing to base anything they say. You hear all the time. And one thing we ask Christians to do is just attune ourselves to listen to what people say. And people say, it's wrong to do this. And you guys say, why is it wrong? Based on what you believe, why is that wrong? How can you say something's wrong? If you don't believe in an absolute truth, how can you say something's wrong? The second approach, besides the secular approach, is the spiritual approach. This is the idea that truth is found in a religious tradition. Um, it says that all religions contain truth. After all, right? All religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. But in fact, that's not true at all. Right? They're actually fundamentally different and only superficially the same. You ask any self-respecting Orthodox Muslim if his religion is the same as Hinduism, he's not going to tell you yes. He knows it's different. You ask any Orthodox Jew, any self-respecting Orthodox Jew, he knows it's not the same as Buddhism or Christianity. He knows what the differences are. Right? It's only people who don't understand those religions who believe this view. There's a group called the Baha'is who believe that all religions should be, should be treated the same. Every religion has truth. And they don't exclude anybody, except they exclude the exclusivists. So even they can't escape excluding somebody. Because truth, trying to battle against the law of non-contradiction is like trying to talk about a one-ended stick. Right? It's frustrating. Why can't these are all word games? No, it's wrong. That's why it doesn't work. Um, here's a, a poem written by Steve Turner, Canadian. It's called Creed. And this is really good at describing the spirit of the age and, and relativism, but also this idea that everything is true. He says, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. There's skepticism right there, right? We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average, what's average is normal, what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. 
This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, accepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejections of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. That's a powerful uh, poem there, just describing how ridiculous some of this stuff is. Um, All religions can be wrong, but they can't all be right. The third approach is the scientific approach. This is called scientism, okay, with a capital S. This says that only science is qualified to make judgments about reality, and it's the only way to truth. Science relies on verified empirical data, and so it can be trusted. And we're, very often as Christians, we're intimidated by this approach. Right? This kind of is a little frightening. We feel like we're cast as being less educated, as Christians being against anti-science, like the Bible contradicts science. Did you know that between 1900 and 2000, those 100 years, over 60% of the Nobel Prize winners in science believed in God? Over 60%. Um, David Hume, who was one of the fathers of skepticism, said this. He said, if we take in our hand any volume of divinity or metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can, can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. It's the only science. There's a problem with that. Hume's statement can't pass its own test. There's no numbers in that statement. There's no scientific facts. That's a metaphysical statement. By its own test, that statement should be committed to the flames. It doesn't work. It's self-defeating. There are a few problems with the scientific approach. First, it assumes that scientists are unbiased and neutral, and that they're not people, that they are, they are the objective ones. Um, but that's not true. They're humans just like us. There's controversies all the time when you find scientists who've altered the data to fit. How would you like to be a scientist who studied something for 30 years, and then you find out there's some new piece of data that proves everything you said was wrong? There's a lot of pressure to not believe that. It's real. It's the same pressure we would all face. They're not unbiased. Aldous Huxley famously said, uh, he later became a Christian, but he said, I wanted there not to be a God. And so I had no trouble finding evidence that there wasn't a God. But the reason he wanted there not to be a God, he says right out, because I knew that that would place demands on me spiritually. And I wanted to live the life that I wanted to live. Is that bias? He's admitting he's coming with, with, with a bias. John Lennox, who, um, uh, I sh- in a way I shouldn't do this, but I will. I'm going to recommend a book to you, Can Science Explain Everything? It's, it's recently written by John Lennox. I've read others of his books. I've heard him speak, and he's really good. If you haven't heard him, he's kind of a cross between Santa Claus and your grandfather, a very gentle-spirited um, Irish man. Uh, I, I don't know how old he's exactly. I think he's in his 80s. But he is, um, and I'm not going to have all of this right, he's Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University. Um, Emeritus Fellow in Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Green Templeton College, which is the graduate school at Oxford University. He has multiple PhDs and and master's degrees in applied mathematics, philosophy of religion, philosophy of science, and and several others. I won't remember them all. But he talks about when he was young in graduate school, and he was able to have dinner with a Nobel Prize winner. And since he never had dinner with one before, he thought he would ask them some of the big questions of life. And if he said it became obvious, he didn't want to talk about that. And so, but afterwards, he invited John back to his, I think, his apartment or his house, where a bunch of other professors met them, and they put him in a chair, and he said, look, do you want to have a career in science? And he said, yes. He goes, then give up this ridiculous religion of yours. It's only going to hold you back. 
Is that unbiased? Not at all. Not at all. While science can discover certain facts about the world, it has no basis for making moral judgments on them. It can't tell you. It can tell you why, you know, when you mix hydrogen and oxygen, you get water. But it can't tell me why I should love my wife or be faithful to my wife. It can't speak on these things. Did you ever hear a drug addict say, I was reading a math book and it convinced me to give up my drugs? Anyone ever say, you know, I was looking at my biology book and I decided to stop lying? No, it doesn't speak to those issues. It's not meant to. It doesn't do that. And also, there's a mistake. When they talk about science and, and, and the Bible conflicting or contradicting each other and God, um, there, there's a category mistake here. God doesn't. This, this illustration is a great one. It comes from Lennox, actually. God doesn't conflict or compete with science as an explanation of the universe any more than Henry Ford conflicts with automotive engineering and physics to explain a car. There are different kinds of explanation. One is a scientific explanation. One is an agency explanation. The laws of physics... The laws of, air, of automotive mechanics existed for thousands and millions of years. No cars jumped out of thin air. It took a Henry Ford. Or, and, and lots of, I know Henry Ford was in the first one, but other people like him. It took an agent to do that. Those are different kinds. Of, both are true, but science can't explain the agency fact, factor. Um, in the same way, God, you, we may see things around and see how the universe works, but that doesn't mean that God is conflicting with that. It just means that God made that and made it that way. There's no conflict. And then finally, the scriptural approach, which is the truth is a person. Let's consider a few biblical truth claims. First, objective truth exists. We looked at that before. You will know the truth. So Jesus is clear it exists. Second, the absence of truth creates bondage, but truth can free us. He said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, free from what? Um, in 1763, Augustus Toplady, that's either the best or the worst name ever, I can't decide, um, was a minister in England, and he was traveling, he was caught in a horrible thunderstorm. And he was, he was worried, he was afraid. And he was going, wherever he was going, but he saw a rock that had a cleft in it. And he went and hid in that cleft, and he sheltered from the storm. And afterwards, he wrote the famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Listen to this verse. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. See, at salvation, we're saved from the guilt of sin. That's removed, right? But it does something, God does something else for us through the process of sanctification and at salvation. He saves us from the power of sin. We're not in bondage to it anymore. We all know what temptations, like right, I know before I spoke, I read the poem by Michael, a prayer by Michael Coist which is a powerful description of how temptation comes in like a flood, and we try to resist it, and we fail, and then we're left, he says, with our sin in our hands. You know, and he describes it in just such vivid terms. We all know what that's like, but the bondage to sin is broken. So it's the power of sin and the bondage of sin. We're told that we're to be sanctified. Jesus in John 17, he's praying for his disciples, both his current disciples and his future disciples, and he says, sanctify them by the truth. That word sanctify means to be, basically to be set apart and committed to God. That's what we're called to be. We're not called to some half-hearted Christianity. We're called to be set apart and to be sanctified and made more and more like Christ as we grow, as Paul says, grow together in Him. Um, and then if we do that, we also have freedom from having both feet planted firmly in midair. We don't have that anymore because we know that there's truth. We have something to rely on. It also tells us that God's Word is truth. In that second part of that verse where Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth, 
Your word is truth. Now what he's saying here is not just that the Bible says things that are true or tells the truth. He's talking about a different kind of truth, but that it is truth. We use this when we say something like, he's true to his word. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it means that he keeps, he stays in consistency with his word. We shoot an arrow and it hits a target. We say that shot was straight and true. Right? It met the standard. We use words like perfect, real, genuine, sincere, truthful, legitimate, pure, correct, straight, direct, authentic, or faithful to describe this characteristic of being true. And Jesus is saying that God's word is truth. It is truth. And then he says, Jesus says that he is truth. Just like the Bible, the word is truth, the word of God, he is truth. He is the word, the Logos. And we, John chapter 1 talks about that. But in John, remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is, the Pharisees are arguing with him. And at one point he just says, before Abraham was, I am. And when he says that, it says they picked up stones. Some, they were furious because they recognized when he said, I am, he's referring back to when Moses was given by God his name. And he said, my name, I am who I am. I am the, and they realized Jesus is claiming that he is God. Okay. And they're furious about that. But there are seven other times in the book of John that Jesus uses the I am phrase with a metaphor. And what he's really saying is not I am the bread of life, but I am the God who is the bread of life. So I am the God who is the bread of life who feeds you. I am the God who is the light of the world that shows you the way. I am the God who is the door that provides a way for you to be saved for salvation. I am the God who is the good shepherd. I am the God who is the resurrection and the life. I am the God who is the true vine, where you find your, your nourishment. And in John fourteen six, he says, I am the way, I am the life. And in the middle, he says, I am the truth. I am the, a God who is true, who is the truth. If uh, the worship team will come, get ready to come now. Um, so in closing, if Jesus is truth, and we're called to continue his word and be sanctified and be more and more like him, then it follows that we also are called to be true. Right? Not just people that are nice. Not just people who speak truth and say things that are true. But people who are true. Who accurately reflect Christ to the world. When people look at the world and see Christ in us, they should see it like we were pure glass. There should be no distortion. They shouldn't get a a bad view of Christ through us. There's a story... I'm going to tell you, Jakob Kovac was an evangelist who traveled on foot in Yugoslavia during the Second World War and the subsequent fall of the Iron Curtain. I think he died in 1962. Marie Chapin, in her book, Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy, tells the story largely of him and of his, um, his time in ministry. But there's one particular chapter where she talks about him visiting a particular village. And there he met a young widow with a newborn baby and her uncle, a man named Simmerman, crusty old man. He said, ah, evangelist. You preach to us of a God of love. Permit me to ask you if you are aware of what is being done in the name of your God of love. And he proceeds to give him a whole litany of things being done by the Orthodox priests that he's seen over the years. These men of the cloth tortured and killed my own nephew before my eyes. Here before you is his widow, a child in the bloom of life with a baby in her arms. I saw them torture her husband. I saw him die in his own blood. And then I watched the killers calmly genuflect before the main altar at the church crossed themselves with the holy water, and a few minutes later their forks scraped their plates as they ate their supper in the parish house. The old man was trembling now. His face was red and wet with sweat. And you speak to us of a God of love? 
After a minute, Jacob said, my heart suffers with your heart. And there's silence for a few minutes. And finally he says, tell me, Zimmerman, if I put your coat on my back and I put my feet into your boots and I go out onto the streets and tell people that I'm you, will I be Zimmerman or will I be Kovac? Of course, you'll be Kovac. But suppose I steal something from somebody and the people see only Zimmerman's coat and Zimmerman's boots. And then the officials come to your door and they say, Zimmerman, you were stealing. You must pay the penalty. But you tell them, nay, nay, it was not I. I have not left my chair. It was not I. Ah, but you were seen, Zimmerman. You were seen and identified. You're guilty. After a long silence, Zimmerman just kind of muttered, I do not believe in the name of your God. He understood the point. For a year, he agreed that Jacob could continue to pray for him and come see him. For one year, every week, Jacob walked 10 kilometers to visit Zimmerman and to share the gospel, always hearing about the horrors of what the Orthodox Church had done and different things that people in the name of God, things had done. Finally, one winter morning after a year, Zimmerman met him as he approached the village. He said, Kovac, you've convinced me. Your God is real. Your God is God. And he and his niece knelt in the snow and gave their hearts to Christ. And that was the start of a church in that village. And as he got up, he took Kovac's hand and he said, Jakob, you were his coat. Well, you wear his coat well. We're called to be true. We're called to wear his coat well. Let's worship together.